Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. The bubbles in a glass of champagne. You go to Thank you, Ella. So we're going to be talking about brainwashing uh, today. Brainwashing is people going to your head, getting inside your head, maybe making you do things you would not otherwise do. The word has a long and complicated history. You're going to hear about it today. I'm going to begin by just reminding you of another expression, another kind of imprecise expression that has come to be a little bit or nearly synonymous with brainwashing. And it's, it's actually an expression I've tried to weed out of my own discourse, although I'm not entirely successful, I don't think. And it's drink the Kool-Aid. So, you know, you are, you are said to, it is said that you drank the Kool-Aid uh, when you fully embrace something, right? Embrace some concept, some idea. Uh, you've gone all the way down the road with it, etc. And, of course, it comes from Jonestown, the most uh, grim possible origin that it could, could have. It comes from Jonestown, uh, the mass suicide of, I think, 909 members of the People's Temple in Guyana. And the weird thing about it is drinking the Kool-Aid was not how they got brainwashed, right? By drinking the Kool-Aid is not how they got radicalized. They got radicalized in a different way. Drinking the Kool-Aid is what they did to— take their own lives, sometimes uh, at gunpoint or under duress uh, at the end of this whole thing. So it's sort of weird because drink the Kool-Aid, it's a misprision, right? It's kind of been led to mean kind of getting brainwashed, kind of um, over-embracing some new school of thought. Uh, But that's really not what it was. It was the end product of something like that. Anyway, here to speak much more knowledgeably and probably much more coherently than I have uh, is uh, one of our guests today. Uh, Joel Dimsdale is a distinguished professor emeritus in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California, San Diego, and the author of Dark Persuasion, a history of brainwashing from Pavlov to social media. Welcome to our show. Thank you very much. It's it's an honor to be with you today. Well, um, so let's begin with this word itself. It is, I think, by your own concession, kind of a slangy term, not really the kind of term uh, um, an academic w- would choose, but it kind of has chosen us, right? It just drowns out other more precise or more clinical terms uh, for the same thing. Uh, drown out doesn't begin to describe its dominance. The Probably the best term is coercive persuasion. That's a term that professionals can relate to, but brainwashing uh, absolutely dominates that. If you, if you look at, do a Google search on brainwashing, you find something like 50 million 
web pages. And if you look at coercive persuasion, it's like 48,000. Uh, so in popular culture, we're stuck with this term. It's flamboyant and sloppy, but it's a shorthand that I think if we, if we really try to remind ourselves that what we're talking about when we use the term brainwashing is really coercive persuasion, we'll understand each other much better. Right. So uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, your book runs through a long timeline uh, of things that resemble one another uh, generally, if not precisely. So we we start with Pavlov and we, we can come back to him for a second. But yes, uh, some of the things that came out of the Korean conflict, uh, the things like the Patty Hearst kidnapping and her claim of having been uh, brainwashed to the, I just mentioned the People's Temple. You mentioned Heaven's Gate. They turned out to be your next door neighbors. Um, you know, and, and I find myself wondering, are these things all similar and enough so that we really can take either term, brainwashing or coercive persuasion, and say, yes, there is a thing, and we can kind of test for it. We can look for it and diagnose it uh, and say how it's different from other things. Well, I think you've uh, uh, summarized the whole purpose of the book uh, <laughs> more succinctly than I did. Uh, the What I did was to try to pick out the sentinel events in the 20th century, events where most people would say, gee, I wonder if brainwashing was involved. And um, uh, I then tried to tease those events apart and try to see how well uh, each of them fit the model. I mean, if you, if you look at coercive persuasion, there are certain common features that you uh, you see. Uh, it's uh, done, it's imposed at a time of great stress on the victim. It is uh, most effective when the target individual is isolated from uh, his or her environment, his, his family, friends, uh, and forced to interact solely with this one perspective, typically uh, a group. It is accompanied by sleep deprivation. We know that sleep deprivation makes people more suggestible uh, and uh, increases their confusion. Um, and there's an enormous amount of social pressure that's put uh, to play upon the target so uh, one can generate a list of four or five or six common features in brainwashing and ask, well, how much of that uh, appears to have been present during Stalin's purge trials or during Patty Hearst captivity, uh, et cetera? Yeah, and I think you do that that very well. It's interesting too because it, it's it's used in a much more flabby way, although I think not a totally illegitimate way. I mean, for example, uh, Malcolm X said that uh, that Black Americans have been brainwashed into believing the the myth of white superiority and white supremacy. Uh, there's was a documentary in 2016 called "The Brainwashing of My Dad." It was by a young woman whose father, in retirement, got really interested in right wing talk radio and Fox News and 
Rush Limbaugh and Roger Ailes, and she felt as though he changed. Uh, he wasn't the same person anymore. He had a whole different set of beliefs and a whole different set of impulses that had supplanted the old ones. Those are interesting, and, and I think they're legitimate grievances, uh, but they probably don't fit in to the coercive uh, persuasion rubric that you just described. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a very uh, interesting comment. If you if you imagine like a cloud of words that have some overlap, there's brainwashing, there is persuasion, there is education, there is indoctrination. All of those things share some features, but the real uh, nubbin of brainwashing has to be coercive persuasion. Uh, I, I don't think it's enough to say somebody was just persuaded. Uh, uh, I, when, if, if you're going to use a term like brainwashing for clarity, we should talk about a, a circumstance when an individual uh, is sequestered and forcibly indoctrinated. So these comments about um, the brainwashing of America, I think that, that, that should get us all thinking. Are we being in some way indoctrinated? That's a fair question. But is that brainwashing? Uh, I would tend to reserve that term for a, a more particular circumstance. Right. And so I'm going to ask one more kind of gray area question about that, and then I want to get into the history of this a little bit. But, you know, coercive is sometimes in the eye of the beholder. You write quite a bit in this uh, uh, book about so-called religious cults. So, you know, a tech, I, I should say, I covered this a lot in the 1970s, which was sort of a real hotbed uh, for all this stuff and talked to cult members. I talked to cult parents. Uh, I covered deprogramming situations. Uh, so, I mean, one of the models was, and you heard it a lot in particular with in connection with the so-called Moonies, real name, Unification Church, where... You know, college-age kids would be sort of beckoned, would you like to learn something more about world peace and how to fix everything? We'll come to this little retreat or this this place, you know, up in the Adirondacks or whatever for the weekend. And then they were so-called love-bombed. Uh, they were just affirmed in a way that they typically weren't, uh, maybe a little bit more like operant conditioning, conditioning you know, just giving in, given insane amounts of positive reinforcement. And, yeah, sleep was often at a premium, uh, not easy to get. Um, you know, it wasn't like you they were being held in an internal camp somewhere. Um, but I think based on what I read in your book, you regard that as at least potentially a kind of brainwashing. Well, it, it, it's interesting. The, the 19, we, we think of the 1970s because of all of these uh, awful events that happened. But, um, you know, it's not limited to something that happened 50 years ago. If you Think about the Nixium group uh, mm -hmm. or the the Sarah Lawrence uh, 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 encounter uh, that's in the recent news. These issues of when a group becomes indoctrinated and how it's terribly important and terribly disturbing. Uh, so I, I don't think it's something that's musty. Uh, oh no, I didn't mean to say that. Um, uh, 
Yeah, I think the other question, though, is so I talked to members of these groups in the 70s, uh, and they would often say, oh, no, I'm here because I want to be. Uh, my parents are nuts. They're all worried about this, but I'm fine. Um, now, one of the interesting questions here is, here, here is are, are they, in fact, engaging in acts of volition by participating, or has the genius of the indoctrination been uh, to create a sense of volition where really there there isn't one, uh, that there's sort of a sense of I'm doing what I want to do. No, you're really doing what we want to do, but we've managed to persuade you of the former. I don't know. What's your thought about that? Well, there, there's an interesting uh, long history of this, and uh, it it comes from the literature studying religious conversion. The If you look at new religions, um, you find that only about 5 or 10% of people who've adopted a new religion or joined a cult, only about 5 or 10% stay in that new religion for more than uh, a year, as long as they can freely enter and exit the, the religious group. Now, when there's a fence, it's an entirely different matter. Uh, you mentioned Jonestown. Jonestown was sequestered in the middle of the jungle, surrounded by barbed wire fence and armed guards. There was no way for people to leave Jonestown if they had second thoughts about the matter. And those are the circumstances that we're most concerned about where there are threats of violence uh, to the individual or where there's a fence that really keeps them in literally or figuratively. The problem with these threats of violence is that um, sometimes they're less vivid than a barbed wire fence. Patty Hearst, for instance, was told that uh, if she ever uh, uh, turned her turned in the Symbionese Liberation Army, Army and her colleagues in the SLA, they would come after her, uh, or they would come after her family. So that the question is: Do you regard that as a palpable threat that impedes a person from coming and going? So to use your example, it's very distressing uh, when somebody you love starts espousing very strong beliefs uh, that you disagree with, but that doesn't mean that they are necessarily brainwashed. I think if you're a parent, uh, a lover, a friend of someone under those circumstances, you hope to retain some open communication and hope that the person will, will return. The, the, this issue of deprogramming is, uh, well, it's like brainwashing the brainwash. Yes. Uh, and it's, it's very troubling. Right. I mean, it, it, there were civil liberties issues uh, around that uh, and, and the sense that the cure kind of resembled the disease in some alarming ways. We're going to take a quick break here. We're talking to Joel E. Dimsdale, his book, Dark Persuasion, the history of brainwashing from Pavlov to social media. 
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. We're talking about the idea of brainwashing or coercive persuasion. We are talking to the author of Dark Persuasion, A History of Brainwashing from Pavlov to Social Media. Joel E. Dimsdale is with us. So, you know, let's do a little bit of the history. We're going to have to speed date through this. Um, but, uh, yeah, the subtitle mentions Dr. Pavlov. We all remember nice Dr. Pavlov from our intro to psych class. Uh, he's the guy who figured out that uh, if you show your dog a Ritz cracker and he eats it and he likes it, uh, the next time you show him the Ritz cracker, he's going to salivate. Pretty soon, if you ring the bell uh, along with the Ritz cracker, he'll salivate from that. Then you can take the Ritz cracker away, and he just salivates because of the bell. He doesn't get anything to eat out of the whole process. You've substituted a secondary uh, stimulus and gotten the same response. So what does nice Dr. Pavlov have to do with something as nefarious as brainwashing? Pavlov was a genius. Uh, We lose sight of the fact that he received the Nobel uh, Prize for Physiology and Medicine because he was such a meticulous experimenter who studied links between behavior and physiology. Uh, I just got a new puppy, and uh, I I wish I had some of Pavlov's skills, because Pavlov was just astonishing. He could could train a dog to respond to the note of C, but disregard a note of C sharp. (laughs) So he was phenomenal uh, in in his ability to train and teach and shape behavior. His early work focused, as we all know, um, uh, on dogs, but he got interested in people under a, a set of very unusual circumstances. His labs were in the basement of a uh, building in St. Petersburg, uh, adjacent to the Neva River. And the Neva had an enormous flood one year and the basement started flooding. All the staff were gone. The dogs were in essence floating in their crates and barely able to keep their snouts above the water. When at the last moment, Uh, an animal handler rushed in and rescued the dogs. But in order to get them out, he had to uh, open the crate door, pull the dog's head under the water, and then get them out. What Pavlov and the rest of the lab observed was that 
the dogs were never the same after this massive trauma experience. They forgot everything that Pavlov had taught them. They changed their friendships uh, uh, with other dogs and with the trainers. They became, in essence, totally different. Pavlov became convinced about the power of trauma on behavior change. Now, the next chapter with Pavlov is very peculiar and not widely known. And that is that Pavlov was actually held in deep affection by the communist leaders in the Soviet Union. Lenin visited Pavlov's lab and stayed for hours talking with Pavlov, asking him, in essence, can you help me shape the Soviet people so that they'll become better communists? And Pavlov said, well, yes. Uh, whereupon Lenin and subsequently Stalin supported Pavlov, gave him an institute, funded him with over 350, 350, over 350 research assistants and postdocs to carry out his work on behavior change. And you must remember that in the early days of the Soviet Union, there was a, a virtual famine. So this amount of support given to a scientific endeavor was most unusual. People have frequently speculated that some of Pavlov's techniques were employed uh, at the time of the Soviet purge trials when uh, people made extravagant, clearly bogus confessions. And there has always been a suspicion that Pavlov's observations about trauma, isolation, uh, he, told, he, he pointed out that as anyone knows, you're better able to train a dog or for that matter, a person, if they're isolated from other stimuli. Pavlov also observed that uh, sleep is restorative and that if you want to break someone down, sleep deprivation is a, a, a marvelous tool. So before we, so, before, before we run out of time here, because I, I, we are up against it here, I don't want to, there's so much to cover, talking to Joel Dimsdale, our author of Dark Persuasion. So w let's fast forward. We, we get into the Korean conflict. One of the things that things that happens there during the Korean conflict uh, is that uh, somewhere around 20 American POWs at the end of things don't want to come back to America. They say, oh, no, no, we're fine. We'll go to China or Korea or somewhere. Uh, and, and people will say, well, what happened there? Something happened there. So we start to get that idea uh, of brainwashing. And that's when the term begins to be sl slung around. And, and of course, the other thing that happens, and we don't have time to talk about it in any kind of depth, is then the U.S. starts thinking, well, how could we do that? That sounds pretty good. At which point you get an MK Ultra, right? This is the CIA messing around with drugs to see if they can create similar effects. I don't know if you can give us that whole thing in a nutshell. 
Well, let's start with the uh, MK Ultra. Um, you know, uh, I don't know whether your uh, listeners are familiar with any of the Jason Bourne books or movies, but there is more than a teaspoon of truth embedded uh, in the plot of the movies. So recall the movie, Jason Bourne, a young, somewhat unhappy man, sees a avuncular psychiatrist who um, essentially agrees to obliterate his memory and train him so he'd learn new things. Now, in the Jason Bourne thing, the, the books, the, the psychiatrist trains him to be the massive assassin. Well, it's all true other than the training to be an assassin. Under MK Ultra sponsorship from Cornell to Montreal, a very prominent psychiatrist named Ewan Cameron developed a protocol for reshaping behavior. He obliterated memory with massive doses of ECT, LSD, any possible drug he could throw at people. He used insulin in high doses to render people comatose. And then he'd put them to sleep while playing therapeutic messages over a headset, messages that he thought con consisted of the essence of the therapy task. And he would play these messages up to a quarter of a million times. Messages like, Ruth, you love your husband. Um, uh, Hank, you need to be more assertive at work over and over and over. So if there's a model for brainwashing, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty impressive model. What's interesting is what he achieved. He in fact could obliterate people's memories, sadly, and um, many of his patients had long-lasting problems. All right. We are going to have to stop, stop there, Joel Dimsdale. Unfortunately, we've got to go to a pledge break here. We're in the middle of pledge. Uh, the author of Dark Persuasion, a history of brainwashing from Pavlov to social media. This is a trope that also runs through our culture, our popular culture. When we come back from this break, we're going to talk about that. How does it show up in other places? Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by And we are back. Uh, time to say some thank yous and uh, dish out some credit. Uh, a lot goes to Dylan Reyes and Cat Pastor. They are the technical producers today in the control room. Uh, and then Lily Tyson is the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show and producer of this particular episode, which is about the notion of brainwashing. So we've talked a little, little bit about the uh, goal of, uh, of pinning uh, uh, historical meaning and clinical meaning to the idea. But the place a lot of us encounter it is in our popular culture. To talk about that is Tim Melly, a professor of English at Miami University. Welcome to our conversation. Hey, great to be here, Colin. Thanks for having me. So um, I'm going to start with, um, I think, probably the mother of all brainwashing movies. Uh, this is going to be C1, uh, Mr. Reyes. Uh, this is The Manchurian Candidate. Allow me to introduce our American 
visitors. I must ask you to forgive their somewhat lackadaisical manners, but I have conditioned them, or brainwashed them, which I understand is the new American word. To believe that they are waiting out a storm in the lobby of a small hotel in New Jersey, where a meeting of the Ladies' Garden Club is in progress. So, uh... Uh, so you're 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 listening to the kind of nefarious doctor who who does supposedly brainwash these American prisoners, kind of setting the plot in motion here. It's 1962. We're in the thick of the Cold War. We've come out of uh, the Korean conflict, which is first of all where that scene is set, but also where the idea of brainwashing came. You know, I also wonder whether this is feeding a bunch of other fears, you know, or, or reacting to a bunch of other fears, Tim, and particularly the idea of wondering how in the world, given our wonderful, acclaimed American system of freedom and capitalism, other people might appear to be satisfied with radically different communist systems in China and Russia. They must be brainwashed, too. And so, I don't know, culture plays around with these ideas, right? Absolutely. This um, you've kind of started with the mother of all brainwashing um, movies and the one that's still the most enduring. And it's one of the reasons it was so successful um, is is for the reason you just suggested it. It kind of points at brainwashing as um, as a potential weapon of Cold War. But it also suggests that there are all kinds of much more ordinary influences on people. And those are mostly uh, in the film take the form of female influences on men. So the film is partly about communist brainwashing, but it's also about the way that the three, the three blonde women in the film control the men in their lives. Um, I think, you know, what's important to kind of stress about the first thing is that brainwashing is in some ways a model of Cold War itself. And that's one of the reasons it took hold of the public imagination. Um, a, a Cold War is a war in which weapons and territory don't matter as much as influence and ideas. And the idea that you can take a person and convert them into a kind of automaton that can be remotely controlled, um, that you can wipe the memories from people and implant false memories in them. These were things that um, in a kind of hysterical or histrionic way, were basically the, the subject of Cold War. This is a conflict where um, our leaders are telling us that enemy agents are trying to influence us, uh, convince us that their system is better than ours. Um, so I think the film really captures a lot of things that um, that really spoke to its moment. You know, Tim, when you say that thing about the women, uh, uh, I, I hadn't thought about it that way. And I haven't watched the movie in a while. But I think it could be said without stretching a point too much that the movie is also full of anxiety about societal change, all kinds of change. We know in the wake of World War II, uh, things start to change. Uh, there's a redistribution somewhat of wealth and power, and, and there's change in the air. So we're heading into the 60s. We're, we're going to run into something called women's liberation, which is one expression of feminism. And these women, my recollection is that Angela Lansbury has this kind of crypto-sexual relationship with her, or sexualized relationship with her son in, in this movie. There's a sense that women might be dangerous and powerful in unanticipated ways, and maybe that's another anxiety the film is dealing with in, in a fairly subtle way. 
Yeah, man, I don't think it's that subtle. As you said, there is this kind of creepy moment where, you know, Angela Lansbury has um, her son sit, Raymond Shaw, who's the brainwashed assassin in the film, sit on her lap and she kisses him. Um, and it's not a peck on the cheek. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a there is a lot of uh, strange stuff in the film. I, you know, I think one thing to just recognize about that film is that uh, the brainwashing, the famous brainwashing scene that you played a bit of at the beginning of this segment is it, it represents the dream of the protagonist, Ben, uh, ben Marco, one of these guys that was um, taken and brainwashed in Manchuria. And he's, he thinks he's in a meeting of the garden club um, of Oh, we might have lost him. Um, if that's true, I can uh, talk a little bit. Oh, there you are. Okay. We we missed a little bit of you, but I'm but sorry. I, can you? Yeah, but I think we we've got you back here. So so yeah, I, I, we should say that um, obviously this this particular movie expresses a, a lot of anxieties that were around. But as, as we covered a little bit with Joel Dimsdale, no sooner does the American uh, um, defense and espionage establishment recover from this idea that maybe people were being brainwashed uh, by Chinese communists or, or whoever. They think, how can we brainwash people? And that's when MK Ultra s- starts up. Uh, that's this whole notion of uh, messing around with psychotropic drugs, especially LSD, uh, to see if you can change people's behavior that way. Uh, and, and after not too long, um, culture starts to change and reflect that a little bit. Actually, we're jumping quite a few decades ahead. But it seems to me that gets us somehow. We're going to do A1, Dylan, to this. I can tell you the license plate numbers of all six cars outside. I can tell you that our waitress is left-handed and the guy sitting up at the counter weighs 215 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I know the best place to look for a gun is the cab of the gray truck outside. And at this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Now, why would I know that? How can I know that and not know who I am? So we get Jason Bourne, uh, who doesn't know who he is. Uh, he is the product, it turns out, of some kind of uh, government uh, super secret black ops that does exactly that, erases uh, some of people's memories, some of people's volition, turns people into augmented assassins, some of whom, when they m- fail their mission, will just jump out a window and kill themselves. So so it seems, Tim, we've transferred our anxieties from communists who might be trying to mess around with us in our heads to to us who might be trying to mess around with people's heads. Oop, we might not have to. Um, all right. So, so here's the good news. I, I, Colin, I'm in the, uh, I'm in the awkward situation of, of having, there's some issue with our internet. All right. So I think what we're going to do is let Tim go. Uh, maybe I can just sort of talk a little bit about this as we go along here, or or we can uh, we can try to establish contact with Tim, but I'm probably not wanting him to sort of cut in and out that way. So I'll just talk a little bit about some of the stuff that, that we were going to uh, try to get to because it's stuff that I've thought about and pretty am am pretty familiar with. So to me, you've got those two things. 
showing up in our culture. And, and culture often, popular culture often is about our anxieties, the things that we're the most afraid of. And, and you see this in horror. You see it in action and espionage. What are we worried about? Let's make a movie about it. Sometimes the auteurs don't necessarily know that that's happening. Um, so another thing that we've started to think about, another thing that's kind of in our environment, and, and Dylan, we're about to go to the final clip here. Another thing that's kind of in our minds right now is that whole question of trauma, uh, of what do we do with thoughts and memories we wish we didn't have. And we talk about this, I think, more systemically and more concretely uh, than we ever have before. So, um, so you start to get a different kind of movie, maybe even sort of a comedy. Uh, so let's play A2 here, Dylan. Remember the Alamo. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But why remember a destructive love affair? Here at Lacuna, we have perfected a safe, effective technique for the focused erasure of troubling memories. Our patented non-surgical procedure will rid you of painful memories and allow you a new and lasting peace of mind you never imagined possible. Don't forget, with Lacuna, you can forget. So that's Tom Wilkinson in The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So now we're sort of into a different terrain here. Like, what if you want yeah. that? Uh, yeah, go ahead, Tim. I, I don't know how much of that you could hear, but but go ahead and respond. I'm sorry. Yeah, something cut out for me. Um, but thanks for for carrying the, the ball there. So, you know, I think um, you're getting into the idea, the, 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 the fact that brainwashing has continued to be this durable idea, partly because it it's a way of thinking about... Um, amnesia and what we forget. And I think if you, uh, one of the, you know, one of the interesting lines in the, the culture on brainwashing is the connection between the Manchurian candidate and things like the Bourne movies or Homeland, which both had um, brainwashing mm -hmm. uh, themes in them, right? And if you, if you think about the Bourne films, we've got this brainwashed assassin who's unbelievably efficient and good at his work and can't remember any of the horrible things he's done um, at the behest of, of the CIA. That's He's played by Matt Damon, um, this very likable actor. And I think, he's, I think he's a way of thinking about a problem in contemporary democracy, which is that um, citizens in a democracy are supposed to be robustly discussing what their government does. And yet we have a lot of clandestine um, uh, agencies and programs now. And so there are a lot of things that we can't know. And I, uh, I think Jason Bourne is sort of a metaphor for that problem. He's, he's the citizen who cannot know what he has done for the state. Right. And I think another thing about this whole trope and about this kind of culture, too, is that, um, you know, we first of all, we should give some credit to the novelist. Richard Condon originally wrote The Manchurian right, Candidate. Right. Uh, Robert Ludlum originally wrote uh, The Bourne Books. Uh, they're the ones who, who first imagined this. But it's sort of a way there's sort of a way in which it doesn't necessarily toggle in only one direction. I mean, in fact, back to the 1962 Manchurian Candidate, there were some rumors 
Well, it's at a certain point, Frank Sinatra, who's one of the stars of the movie, acquired the rights to it, and you couldn't really see it very easily. And, and there were theories that, as somebody who had been uh, a close associate of the Kennedys, uh, he was he was bothered by the idea of an assassination-driven movie with him in it. But there was also, I think, this kind of sense that for a time. It, it, the, the Kennedy assassination and other stuff made it too real, right? We we didn't necessarily get any kind of processing of our anxieties out of watching one of these movies. We don't if we're really worried about it, not, you know, five years ago in history, but in real time right now. It's too much like the horror of the present moment. Well, that's, that's right. I mean, the movie, um, the timing of it was it came out um, – it was made just before the Kennedy assassination, and it did feel, um, you know, to many people, it felt uh, disturbing in the wake of that event. So, um, uh, as you said, there was this this move to keep it uh, to kind of take it out of the the public realm for a while. And, and I think um, along was, with it is the mystery of Oswald too. Who is this guy? Where does he come from? How did he get to be who he is? How did he turn into this guy uh, who would shoot the president? Uh, was he radicalized in Cuba? What happened here? I mean, it was, it was a little bit too close, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there were, there were a lot of questions like that. And frankly, you know, the brain brainwashing took hold in the American imagination in the Korean War, because um, there were a group, there was a, a, a prominent group of officers who were POWs in Korea, who confessed during their um, captivity to war crimes. They confessed to uh, using biological weapons in Korea, which was something they had not done, and some of them actually refused repatriation. This was in uh, this happened in 1952, and it was very worrying and disturbing to the U.S. military intelligence uh, community. Which is why, um, yeah, they, they start to go, come up with their own program, programs. We start to do culture that addresses some of those questions. I'm sorry to cut you off here, but we are just out of time. Tim Melly is a professor of English at Miami University. This episode is mildly cursed, but I hope it was interesting for you to listen to. You know I can't stand it.